0: welcome to the don't die podcast sponsored by aloe treatment centers they're out in malibu they're in silver lake it's a treatment center i started with some friends we want you to get the right treatment the right program for you and stop dying stop dying people it's ridiculous right <laughs> so so uh, chuck's not here today and we have some guests and we have an event coming up in a couple weeks and so we wanted to do a special episode about what people are doing around the country and here in Los Angeles. You know, um, I'm going to introduce a couple of guests we have. We're having an event called Overdose Awareness Day, August 31st. It's in Venice or Santa Monica. I mean, I always think Ocean Park of Venice, but it is legally Santa Monica. So, and we're going to have it up on the website and you can go to Allo and you can go to my stuff and Rehab Bob and Don't Die podcast stuff. But, and I'm going to be there, Norwood's going to be there, a bunch of friends and the Bradley Knoll families. But we have as a guest, Aunt Debbie, who started an organization here in Los Angeles. It's very similar to Don't Die. I just recently found out about it from Norwood. Um, and I thought I'd, I'd... I'll hand it over to you, Debbie, so you can describe what happened. But what happened, why we created the Don't Die podcast was... Kids were dying all over the country, not necessarily here in Los Angeles as much, but leading cause co- it became the leading cause of death in America for for uh, young people eighteen to thirty four, and I was meeting hundreds of parents across the country in Milwaukee and in Huntington, West Virginia, and in Lakewood, o- Lake lakeside Ohio, who's who'd never even. didn't know anything about drugs or drug culture or drug addiction and their kids were dead and so we started this thing about two three years ago called don't die just the simplest message because the you got to start at the basics of don't die and you need to educate the families about you know one thing that parents don't like to hear and i think it's part of your story from what i've read is if somebody is using opioids and they have been for months and months and months they have a higher likelihood of dying if they stop taking them than if they continue taking them and people in the recovery industry don't want you to think like that. So actually getting off drugs and then returning back to active use, that's when you die. Right? And so that was one of the first messages I had, like, listen, rehab's not a joke. If you don't want to stop, you shouldn't stop because the likelihood that you could die increases by stopping for three weeks if you're just planning to go back to fentanyl-laced heroin and you're going to use the same amount that you used a month ago, you're going to die. And I started telling kids this, and they, they were like lemmings going off a cliff. I would tell them that, and they would die. And so I think you had a personal experience with this, that profoundly affected UW, and you did something about it, right? Do you want to tell the story?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I lost my nephew, James, um, July 13th 2016 Mm -hmm. and um so my family's in michigan i live in the la area i've been here for almost 20 years but my family's in michigan and james had been out to la for a few times and he moved out here no he just moved out here because he liked la he loves california because it's warmer well you know that's
0: been the thing they all come out here to go to rehab
1: well that's that's part of the story too but the, the story begins that he just liked being out in california and he lived out here for a few months and then he was going back and forth and then um I get a text from my sister one day, you know, telling me that James has been doing heroin for about three years. And I'm like, on the floor, like, what? how is it? People don't do heroin. People don't do heroin anymore. What is? How is that even possible? I mean, I, I was not aware of that. Right. I'm not super naive, but I wasn't aware of that. Well, and, was it wasn't
0: the problem here in Los and, Angeles that it became in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah. That's the thing that America wasn't catching on to.
1: Yeah, yeah. In In... Midwest it's what people were doing and it's what kids were doing and, I mean I'm a nurse I'm a nurse right. I didn't realize that heroin was an opioid I was very just not well educated about that right I am now but in 2016 I wasn't so James came out here to go to a rehab and um, he was here for about three months And he was almost finished with the program and he, he was kind of kicked out of the program. Mm -hmm. They said something happened. He said it didn't, he -hmm. didn't trust them anymore and he didn't want to stay. They were going to like restart his, his treatment. So he chose to leave and he went back to Michigan. Didn't really tell anybody. He, he was just gone. His family actually was going to come out and my sister and her husband and his sister, James's sister were going to come and stay in my apartment here in Los Feliz. And, um, for like a week together the first time they've been together since he left for treatment um but a week before suddenly he's back in michigan and the trip is canceled and uh okay james is back in michigan i call everybody in the you know i call a few people in our family and say james is he's left he's Mm -hmm. back in michigan people check on him james are you okay you all right i'm texting him saying james you're all right he's like yeah i'm okay i got this i'm okay and 24 hours later he was dead
0: that's the thing. I'm so sorry.
1: And um, so it was just a lot of educating myself and I mean, we, I know now. I know now what I should have known then, and I think that that's um,
0: And that's what you're trying to do. That's what I want message. to do now.
1: That's what I want to do now is: Wise
0: up, wake up, everybody. That's We're fun.
1: connected. Ellie is connected to every other part of the country, to every, every other part of the world, because this is where people come for treatment. Mm-hmm. This is where people are recruited to come to treatment. Right. And, um, and well, people go back. Well, they're actually sold
0: in Michigan to, yes. I know this very intimately, the treatment center he was in, I know the mechanics of it, and it was caused by a, the lack of professionalism, the lack of medical professionalism that was allowed to happen in the recovery industry, right? Mm-hmm. And you coming from a medical background. I worked in hospitals always. When I, I worked at Los Encinas Hospital for nine years, I worked at Pasadena Recovery Center, it was a, a, what's called a CDRH. There had to be nursing, 24-hour nursing, 24-hour medical care. It all of a sudden just started being any house in any neighborhood. And the reason why that happened it's important for everyone to understand was the insurance companies didn't want to pay for people to be in a hospital and you deal with that all the time they want them out do they have to be there yeah. do they have to take up a bed and that's our broken health care system when you hear our broken health care system understand that out of one dollar that's spent on healthcare, 33 cents of it is argued about the bill what the charges are and who's going to pay for it one-third of every dollar One third of, another third of the dollar goes to actual medical care, and another third goes to Medicare and and elderly care, right? And we have a broken healthcare system, and it's not that complicated to understand it. So as soon as, because I loved working at Los Angeles Hospital, I loved working amongst people that were smarter than me, when we were held accountable by the state, by the federal government, And all of a sudden, it was just like, rent a house and have a rehab. And it doesn't matter if a doctor's there. It doesn't matter if a nurse is there, as long as they see him in 24 hours. So make no mistake that the the tragedy of your nephew's care was started years before that. And and the insurance industry dictates care in America. You know that if you're in medical. Mm -hmm. You have to get authorized. You have to see a specialist because they're trying to prevent spending the money. We have a for-profit healthcare system. Healthcare should not be profited off of, right? And yeah. so, so I was just a part of that and I, I saw what was going on. I tried to get with people to wise them up, to hold, hold themselves accountable, right? In these different treatment centers. And, and there was always, always this fallback which is, well, that's above and beyond the requirement. I said, well, I don't care if it's above and beyond. That's what, that's what always has been. That's what always has made this thing worthwhile, right? And, and you know, we don't make a lot of money here at Allo because we do spend on the, on the care of, of having medical staff here every day, all the 20, 24-hour nursing. So you don't have that at a lot of treatment centers. And so, and then by, by virtue of the corruption of the recovery industry, which was really recovery industries, the only reason why you ever got involved in it, is you had a passion for helping addicts or you wanted to own a home, right? That was basically it. Like this is Promises Malibu, Promises that ended up being the famous Promises Malibu were inside one of the group rooms. This started in 1989. This is the first residential treatment center in Los Angeles that got a license. Richard, who founded it, a mentor of mine, the reason why he did it was because he wanted to live in that house across the street. That was his ultimate goal. Like, I'll be able to help people, I'll make a living, and one day I'll own a beautiful home in Santa Monica. There was no, I'm going to make hundreds of millions of dollars like Sovereign Healthcare did and, and and American Addiction Centers and be a publicly traded rehab company. So there was this this. Thing, these powers that be that were working against your bro- your nephew's best interest. Plus this naivete on the part of Midwesterners. Like heroin was in town. You may not notice the Bloods and Crips or MS dealing it, but it's there. It's being transported front, down through, you know, the, the it first came down through Canada, down in through Maine, and you start to see these profound effects on the societies in the the atlantic up great atlantic uh, northern then, atlantic then it came down into the midwest and i believe that parents were really not seeing the warning signs of their children withdrawing from sports with i mean there's a cheat sheet that's existed for 40 years if your kid's grades are dropping if they've lacked interest in their hobbies, they lose passion for their hobbies and interests. If they start quitting sports teams and saying they don't want to do things, they isolate more and more. You see their circle of friends change. Wake up! Heroine's in town.
1: Right? And even if they know, it's hard to know what to do.
0: Well, you always should call a family member yeah. who has experience and we don't have families anymore, so that's a problem, <laughs> right? I would imagine they would call you if they knew. How long till your brother and sister-in-law called you?
1: They didn't really call me, but I asked. You were and inquisitive. You thought yeah. something was going on. Yeah. What made yeah. you
0: suspicious?
1: Um, I guess just his behavior. Right. His behavior. His isolation. But James was a sweet kid. James was my guy.
0: Right. Well, we idealize children. All my children are sweet, and, and but they can be they grow up to be adults that are don't make the best decisions. Absolutely, I think we can't be naive about things. So the last podcast we were talking about um, about the shootings, right? And always these parents always get the passes. Like we had no idea. Like your kid just shot and killed twenty people. You had no idea. Are we really supposed to believe that? Either you're the dumbest parents in America or you're you're embarrassed that you didn't do anything. And can we have an intelligent conversation about what to do? Cuz that's yeah. what your event is about. What to do when you see the warning signs? What to do in these when your kid is on drugs? Do you get them treatment? Do you do you try to manage it with medication assisted treatment? You know, do you be tough love? Do you, there's all these options, but you have to be be informed and aware and confront the situation that's going on you can't just sweep it under the rug and you have a you have a friend here w you want to introduce her
1: yes this is Lori hill she is a really amazing person she is a mom uh, she is a facilitator of a grief support group right in the la area grasp yeah
0: and you can look that up online how do you find grasp? so you
2: can find us online um at grasp help dot org right. um, grief recovery after substance passing mm-hmm. so grasp is um, It's a subsidiary of broken. No more which is a 501c oh, nonprofit. Cool. So I'm partnering with Debbie not Representing grasp but to get the word out is important too because we talk about these deaths and I lost my son oh, um, and I um, I was in the group of not knowing so it hit us like a train wreck and um, I've kind of taken my heart is in prevention um, and building emotional intelligence around this conversation and ending the stigma with tools but for me um, I was in New Jersey my son died in 2015 Mm. Um, I had no clue He was around any drugs at all, 27 years old. Um, We knew he struggled with alcohol. I completely underestimated the level of his struggle. Um, And those warning signs struggling in school, um, up in his room, you know, for hours at a Mm -hmm. time playing games. detaching from the family, um, not being the one that wanted to talk to us. So when I got the call that that Jarrett was gone and he died, um, it was complicated and we still have questions. So part of the mourning process is that you don't have all the answers and it is learning to heal with an open heart and an open mind. And lots of those questions that we won't have answers to, we may never have answers to. Jarrett was found by his girlfriend. He had snorted a speedball. Wow. He was inebriated. And it had high levels of fentanyl in it as well. Yes. Um, She had just come out of rehabilitation and uh, bought the drugs uh, in Newark from a dealer Mm -hmm. um, and got high with him and then went back to his house and... um, they, took, they snorted, and Jared died. Mm-hmm. So when I got that call, I was sound asleep, and I thought I had just, it didn't seem real at all, right. because I was that parent who had no clue. Right. So I think a big part of overdose day is also raising awareness that we have to change the conversation and that we won't change stigma without giving people tools to use.
0: And do you see the stigma, you guys, as it's bad to be a drug addict, that being an addict is something to be ashamed of, to be it's stigmatized in our society? Is that the stigma you're talking
2: about? So the stigma that I'm talking about is that we don't talk about what it's like to be a human being today and that the struggle... The struggle is a natural struggle we will all face and life sabotaging behaviors come from not being able to deal with challenges in our lives with emotional intelligence we are emotionally illiterate and so my my heart and soul is about bringing this conversation into schools and to when people want to sit and talk like this or elsewhere, it's having the conversation that there are tools we can use to look at these challenges in our lives and invite the conversation because I didn't even have the conversation. Right. That's how naive I was.
0: Well, I mean, it's hard to have conversations with your kids about drugs and about what they're doing, especially at the age that you're drugs and you're sex to That's talk tough. To about them. Yeah. Right? So... 16, 17, 18, 13, 14, when do you talk? And we just had Norwood Fisher, who's gonna be on our event on a podcast uh, earlier. And he and I have always let our kids know about drugs. Knew about it, saw it, saw withdrawals, saw, and he growing up, his mother allowed him and his brother to see what drugs are, what they do to people. The white suburban kind of view of drugs is very naive. It's almost, beyond naive like white people don't become drug addicts well guess what it's a majority of white people that are drug addicts and a majority of white people that are dying of drugs so i don't know how much longer this white suburban bullshit can continue to be believed by people honestly because i've never believed
2: i think the balloon has already popped (laughs) i
0: think so too and But you understand what I'm saying, right?
2: Right, because we have a false sense of security, because what we don't know won't hurt us.
0: Well, the best example is, I think, when I grew up, the idea was, so I grew up here in Los Angeles, and the first black family that moved on our block, my dad put our house up for sale, and we're moving away to get away from black people, right? The racism of the late 1960s, early 70s and i wrote a song about it called colorblind that mike and i have had an album in in the 80s that had it and it described what that was and where they brought us was to the most remote parts of southern california that there was nothing for children to do but but basically be away from persons that they didn't desire their children to go to school with or be a part of busing or so so there were these Orange County was a big part of that, the, the Orange County kind of uh, explosion is a part of white flight. My family moved to Palm Desert, California, where there's not a black person for 50 miles, right? Because my dad was a racist. And... What was out there was nothing to do, no sports, no activities, no group, no, no centralized anything for kids. So and I lived out there when I twelve, 12, 13, 14. Everybody's smoking weed, having sex, breaking into houses, stealing golf carts, playing demolition derby, and our parents had no idea about it because they thought, we're safe out here in Palm Desert, right? right? And I think that, the, yeah, go ahead.
1: I was going to say that, I mean, where I'm from, in the Detroit area, um, we're like second-generation children of alcoholics. Right. Everybody in my neighborhood had an alcoholic parent, so we grew up with alcoholics for parents. So alcohol, like, yeah, okay, we're all drunks, but drugs, you know. So my generation, I think we're from the same generation, you know. I'm um, older, but yeah.
0: I'm
1: only a little bit. Oh come on. Now. <laughs> only a little bit. There were a lot of drugs. Everybody was smoking pot. Everybody was doing, you know, acid and mescaline and stuff. But I don't think people were doing opioids. No, I mean, they like, weren't. unless you got your wisdom teeth out when you were like seventeen or eighteen, and then you know, an the explosion. dentist gave you like but two the weeks for so. But society third. evolved with opiates, yeah.
0: and I was a part of it. So there was a music revolution in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties. that kind of ended with Nirvana, and we celebrated heroin and cocaine and sex and. And it was very decadent, and it brought heroin into the conversation of mainstream suburban America. It definitely did. That's yeah, James I agree. addiction, chili peppers. So by virtue of that, then the decimation of what that caused caused everyone a sigh of relief when heroin kind of subsided. Heroin-chic culture kind of goes away in the mid-90s to late 90s. Everybody thinks heroin's gone away forever. No, it's going to rear its ugly head around the new millennium, around 2002, 2003, as it it was just repackaged as OxyContin. It's the same thing. I've never taken OxyContin, but I've talked to people that have taken both, and they pretty much love them both, equal. And the same. Now, fentanyl is a whole other category. That is wanting death.
1: I think that, that people who... So addicts, they're really at risk when they, when they relapse of dying because of fentanyl. Yeah. I think that that's what's changed the conversation. And I think that that's what really takes people out. Is, and it's hard to tell somebody, if you relapse, you're probably going to die because you're, there's going to be fentanyl in whatever you're taking. Right. You know, but I think that that is what has completely changed the game. I
0: I tell every client, including maybe your nephew, I tell every client, you're going to probably use again. Be very careful. Don't die. I've been saying that since 2012 because so many kids were dying that I had counseled. I started saying it right to their faces. You're probably going to use again, and don't beat yourself up, and don't be ashamed, but just be very careful. Don't use alone. Don't be ashamed of using if that's what you decide to do. Please be careful. Know that there's fentanyl in the dope. So many of them have told me, I don't care if I die. And it's not in a romantic, Baudelaire way. It's in a deep, disappointed-in-life way, right?
2: So I was just, we were just Debbie and I were chatting while we were sitting in the lovely garden out here, the <laughs> Zen garden, and um, I just came across, uh, the CDC has information on the diseases of despair.
0: Right, despair, death, it's called.
2: And I can remember my son, before a few months, we just had a family reunion. So I'm from California, and uh, we had a family reunion, we'd flown across the country. We were in Santa Barbara. and. Um, Uh, around that time um, right after we got back from our family reunion because we have a lot of family here um, he told me life sucked and you know I I remember hearing it and thinking oh he's in a really tough spot right now he's had a bad day but I didn't take it I didn't Process it at the level, I think, that it was intended, so we don't know if he intended to do this, we, mm, or, not. or if he was just trying it for the first time. No,
0: probably not, but here's what I've noticed in the Millennials. They know, they're smart, they're, they're, they have access to information, they know they're never going to live a very good life. To live in Los Angeles, I can't even live in Los Angeles. I can't afford it. I own a third of this rehab. I live in Claremont. You can't afford to be a young person coming out of school with $75,000 worth of credit card debt, try to get a job for $40,000 a year in the mailroom at some corporation and live in Los Angeles or live where those jobs are. A single apartment in Los Angeles costs $1,500 a month. $40,000 a year is $3,600 a month. That's not, you can't, so what the possibilities of their lives is overwhelming. So then they start to default. Why go to school? Why try? Why not just live with mom until I'm 27? Why, and that just leads to to feeling left behind, feeling isolated, feeling ashamed, feeling like what is the point of life? We're allowing this because we're not demanding that there be affordable housing for people. We're not demanding that education be free or affordable. This for-profit education system is unbelievable. Brand name educations that mean nothing. My wife, I always tell my, my wife has a four-year degree from Arizona in journalism. The only, only thing they didn't tell her there was there are no journalism jobs. You know what I mean? They don't mind taking your 100 grand for four years, but there's no jobs unless you want to work for a dollar a word for BuzzFeed with no health care. So these are bigger problems that a whole millennial generation, that your nephew, your son, are living in. And I think we're, as baby boomers and Gen Xers, we're not really respecting how hard it is for them. I really, I I see that everywhere. Like I have parents tell me, he needs to get a job at Starbucks. I was like, I don't think that, I don't think A, I don't think he's up to speed enough to work at Starbucks. B, what does that get him? he's just going to be trapped in eternal sober living. He can't get out. How does he get an apartment making $16 an hour? We're we're setting our children up for failure on a mass level, hundreds of thousands and millions of them. And then we're surprised that they're failing. We're failing then.
2: We are failing our kids today.
0: Right? Yeah. And so, so beginning to have conversations like this about bigger picture stuff, one is, great, get the message out. Like mine is simple, like be careful, right? Be careful, right? I don't expect, I don't expect that in the world that, that a lot of these kids are living in with the lack of coping skills and the lack of communication skills, the lack of understanding of the human condition, that they're going to get well anytime soon. I just hope they can survive long enough till that time comes. And that's what hopefully we can educate some people on. the, the, the Saturday of the 31st, right? Yeah. Saturday of the 31st. It's called Time to Remember, Time to Act. And there's going to be music. There's going to be arts projects. Um, Bradley Knoll Family Foundation. What are they going to do? So they're going
1: to do awareness okay oh, um they're going to do some music so his wife going to be there his son going to be there i'm not sure who's coming from the foundation We should try to get a hold of them yeah. mike
0: to get them down there because um his son is a miracle he, he, would, he would so we'll try to and everybody's into spreading this awareness i've never met anybody that see in the old days when we were trying to start needle exchanges and HIV testing, and you'd get so much resistance. It encourages drug use. and other. You don't get any of that resistance from government anymore. Anything you want to do to help with the drug epidemic and the death rate, the government is open to. I'm sure you might have had some of those experiences. So
2: I can tell you from my experience, what I'm finding is that schools and learning communities are among the most hesitant to get these bigger picture conversations going on in schools right? among administrators and faculty.
0: Well, they have zero tolerance. That's what they always <laughs> tell me.
2: It's that bubble, <laughs> but it's that bubble. Let's pull down the shade so that we don't see what's going on because we have already have a major task here in front of us. But we bring emotional intelligence into the conversation and teach that in schools, along with SEL, then we are giving kids a clearer shot at developing emotional agility.
0: Well, there's a thing that's in the schools, I don't know if you're aware, um, it's called non- Nonviolent Communication, that the River Phoenix um, Foundation goes into the schools and teaches peace re- peaceful ways to resolute problems and communication, and Sheriff Baco was a big part of it, and then he got in trouble. What? What happened, Mike? <laughs>
2: There's a bird over there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anything, and
0: the and David Lynch Foundation, Transcendental Meditation, they run the school that my mother was in when she was pregnant with me. There's a, a a school for pregnant, a high school for pregnant girls near downtown L.A. Um, in Rampart section, and it was so poorly managed and it was such a disaster. They actually gave it to David Lynch to do wow. something with. And it's That's amazing awesome. there and the girls meditate three times a day and they're in touch with their bodies and they try to communicate and they're taught communication skills and it's amazing because you're gonna be a mom in like four months. You need to learn. You're so shut down. You need to open up and awaken yourself and be in touch with your body and your feelings and that sort of stuff. So there is little pockets of where LA Unified will allow you in. You kind of have to pick and choose, right? But I, I always say I try not to be involved with the schools because you get no most of the time. You get no most of the time. Including about 10 years ago, we had a program called No Kid Hungry, trying to feed children who don't have food. LA Unified School District wouldn't let us do it. To feed children. So there's always going to be bureaucracy, and that's a bigger argument to think. But you can pick a park, and you can say, let's everybody meet there, and let's everybody try to talk about our losses and talk about what we wished we'd have done differently, and maybe what you can do with your kid. Um, And I love it that loving people like you guys are doing it. Because 10 years ago, it was all mean-spirited, angry, tough lovers. And we're all weak-willed parents. I was a part of that, my son was a little troubled, and I called, you know, there was no place to call. You guys weren't around, there was no, Thing to reach out to. The only thing that was kind of known in say ninety nine two thousand was tough love. They had a one eight hundred number. You called them. They hooked you up with a a sponsor parent, and they they just kind of guided you through this really mean spirited angry thing. And I remember I was on the phone with the woman. And I said I just can't do this. I'm not. I don't hate my kid. I'm not mad at him. I know that I'm partially or mo- majoritively responsible for his behavior and your whole philosophy is we need to be mean to him tough to him take his stuff away bully him emotionally brutalize him pretty and barbaric then he'll become who we all want him to be i just and i just hung up on her <laughs> i just, you know what i mean so I, I think that's where following your gut is important. Yeah, just like we, we got to figure. And exactly. We ended up getting counseling that held me accountable, right? For years, a program called the Vita program here in L.A. Of course, that was a great successful program, so they disbanded that. But it was a great program that if you're if you weren't there participating, your kid couldn't participate. You couldn't just dump your kid off to the Vita program. No, they had family group. Your kid was going to get therapy, and you were going to go to family group. And it was going to be rough. It was going to be some emotional territory, right? Stuff you don't want to talk about.
2: And that's what we're also afraid of is our emotions.
0: Right. Um, The one kind of not talked about, tiptoed around thing was my son was a child of divorce. And we were the best co-parents in the world, so everything's great. And this therapist is saying. Y'all married? <laughs> we are like, oh no, we never were married. da we're the greatest parents in the world, we co-parent, and the woman just zeroed in on that bullshit, right? And th- what came out was how irresponsible I was, and she couldn't depend on me, so there's no way she was gonna form a partnership with me. And that had affected our child, right?
2: Yes. And you have to be yep. open
0: to that, that's yep. the truth.
2: Absolutely. Right. And that hurts.
0: I didn't like there was a majority of my fault, <laughs> but, but, I but think, it was.
2: <laughs> but, but that probably, that was a turning point for you, right?
0: It was. I, I, here's the thing that all parents are scared of. It didn't kill me. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't do what I was always fearful the truth would do to me. It didn't destroy me. It didn't change my life dramatically. It just gave me more insight and more awareness.
1: Why um, would people be scared of that? I think people
0: are scared of a lot of things these days, more so than they were 20 years ago. I think, you know, I see...
2: There's more anxiety and depression now, statistically. And I don't know the statistics, but I recently did look up a couple of studies, but there's more now in... Well, my heart is with kids, but there's more now Globally, but certainly in middle school.
0: Well, there's something in the atmosphere. There's something in our culture that's very sick, and we're working it out. And, uh, you know, I just know
2: that. And there's tools. That's what the hope is. That's the hope part of this. There's tools for all of this that research is showing, and we're not really embracing these tools well, yet. There's we're, a new, we're not talking about them.
0: There's a new paper written by two doctors out of Harvard and it talks about, not the breakdown of the family, but the breakdown of the community. Yes. When you stopped caring about your neighbors, that it was a critical thing that happened in the 80s. And there was some research done. So the Walmart thing is one of the things that they had access to their research, right? So all the big chains and Macy's and Sears had done all this research about Walmart. And and that Walmart was taking away jobs and all this kind of stuff. And it was this destructive kind of thing in a community. And so they'd ask, in all these testings, these department stores that were going out of business. So Walmart uses child labor. Walmart doesn't pay its employees. Walmart doesn't provide health care. Walmart is a huge corporation that doesn't really care about its employees. And they'd say, oh my God, that's awful. That's terrible, it's awful. Oh, oh, bad Walmart, bad, bad, bad. And then they'd say, would you ever shop at Walmart again after you have this information? They'd say, well, they are cheap. So when you started caring about a bargain more than your next door neighbor's appliance store, that's when America started to fall apart. And we became more and more isolated from that point, that economic isolation. A lot of people don't
2: know their neighbors, right?
0: They don't know their neighbors. I know everybody in my neighborhood, Yeah. right? And, and, People
2: used to sit on the front porches and talk to their neighbors, or <laughs> or
0: just BS at the mailbox, yeah. like you know. And that that not being there now, you have two or three generations of kids that don't even know that world, and let alone the paranoia about somebody's gonna, you know, take your kid and run off in the bushes. Eighty percent of all Amber Alerts are their own parents kidnapping them away from the other mm-hmm. parents. There's not hundreds of thousands of pedophiles running around trying to grab your kids. Yet we don't let our children ride bicycles in their neighborhoods. We don't let them walk to school. So all this isolation has led to this weird thing. And the children feel it. They feel that something's wrong with the way that they're being raised, the way that they're growing up and they do they feel you know. so
2: i sold curriculum to schools i covered new jersey that was my career was a, a sales rep for a publisher and at one point in quite a few new jersey schools they took recess away because there'd okay. been so many lawsuits of broken arms and everything <laughs> so, and so, so yes so the craziness is still going on. And um, I just think that it's, you know, thank you for having like this podcast. And um, I know you bring up a lot of different issues, but I think it's having these conversations because we're all afraid to come out of our shells and talk about what's bothering us. But it's killing our kids.
0: It's killing our kids. And that's what's bringing us all together. Yeah. There is, I've been to a hundred cities in America and there's all parents and aunts like you guys, that are starting these great movements, one called Battlefield Addiction in Seattle, one called Don't Die Wisconsin, there's like four different programs in the city of Milwaukee, and it's all been caused by this thing, so what was, I believe, caused a lot of it, now we're countering it with love and community and caring and being honest and, and sharing. Building
2: the connections to community to again. To community. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, and that, that, is, that is... That's is—that's what we need. We need to agree to disagree. We need to right. own up that maybe I wasn't the best dad in the world. Like, all these things that we're so frightened of. Right? I should have seen the warning signs. Okay, well you didn't, but let's help somebody else see the warning signs. We, right?
2: We tend to lead... We, we tend to live our lives um shaming other people and shaming ourselves. All right. So I think that's a big piece of it. We all make mistakes. See, we I all come, miss things.
0: But I come from a different generation where being a drug addict was the coolest thing in the world. Like all the coolest, smartest people were drug addicts. So we I embraced it. So thus I respected what it meant mm. and I understood it and I and I you know, and you were educated by other addicts. This, I have a question. Yeah. So
1: do you think if you were <coughs> in this scene today... I'd be dead. Be, I'd be dead. Because of fentanyl? Yes. That's what I think, too. And I think I that think that has bad. really changed fentanyl the game. Fentanyl has
0: changed the game. And I, 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 I saw a it thing in the me New Yorker... It sad for this generation. I saw a thing in the New Yorker that was shocking. You could spend $1,500 on fentanyl Buy it from China when you could like a year or two ago. You could buy $1,500 worth of fentanyl. Cut it correctly. It is worth $30 million. Tell me the fentanyl is going to go away. It's not going to go away. We have to educate our children about how destructive and deadly it Right? is. We're now having kids who admit into this treatment program here. And you ask always, what's your primary drug of choice? Fentanyl. They choose it out because it's the best. It gets you the most wasted. One kid told me, "I, I said, what do you like about that drug?" Because everything reports I get, or it's really not an opiate-like effect. It's more like a angel. Like a, a he said, "It's like the closest you can be to being dead, but being alive." I said, "What?" And what is the What is the interest in that feeling? Can I tell you? Can I tell you a story? (laughs) So I had
1: I had hip surgery um, a little bit over a year ago, and so after the surgery, you're in the post op area, and they're shooting you with Demerol and fentanyl because it freaking hurts, you know. Sure, that's what that's what fentanyl and Demerol is for. Right, and so I was so comfortable. And just so comfortable and I was hooked up to a, you know a monitor and I could see my breath rate going down from like 10 to 8 to 6 And when
0: did you start four. to get scared?
1: I didn't get scared at all. I said no, no, oh my god. You should be scared at 6. No I wasn't scared at all. I was like it's okay it's okay breathing it's just overrated. <laughs> it's okay i feel like okay right terrifying now. and the nurse told me hey you know miss camp you gotta start breathing a little bit <laughs> i said okay okay but really it would have been okay if i didn't because in that there moment is. i just felt like well it's kind of overrated do i really need that Beyond, was, well, no, i've never been in a, an addict but i mean that's my experience well, with a, fentanyl in a controlled right well, area with a nurse so is, on the monitor so if so you're
2: scary. if you are in any kind of psychic pain and that's, you take that that's, that's
0: yeah well, we're all in psychic pain. i mean we're
1: if you're like in that moment the healthy
0: people and then all the and then the sick people it's just a continuum but, of sick
1: and i think in that moment you might not be saying and i wondered this about my nephew too like was he saying oh shit, oh shit, i'm in trouble or was he just saying, it's okay, well, it's okay. I, I mean, I hope, hope he I went that, peacefully. Here's
0: one thing I think that is lacking in your kids' kids, is hope and aspiration. So what kept me from that, from, not, from wanting to die, was my hope and aspirations for my life and my what could happen, being successful at music, these kids don't have hope and aspirations. You're right.
2: I have to. I just have to say. So I was born in '55. So know. I grew up here in sunny Southern California. I thought everything, everything was always wonderful. I was a nature child, right. and um, you know, I never worried. I didn't worry. Have the worries that our kids today have. No, so when I raised my kids, I raised them like that. But there's. You know, when you look back and and when you lose a child, it's an emotional gutting and it is like being thrown down a rabbit hole. So when you crawl out with your bloody knuckles, you are so disoriented. You feel so for me, all my precepts in life were challenged. And it's it's that hard, cold, cold, painful look at life that started me to think about, what am I doing to contribute to the future generation? I have grandchildren now, and you know, I missed that with my kids, because I just assumed life would be wonderful for them, and that you follow certain patterns and everything falls into place. So now now I know it takes a little bit more work than that and there are tools available. Right. So, we're gonna but I'm going to say that. something
1: to that too because well I mean I don't know I don't know what it was for my nephew. I don't know if he was hopeless. But opioids in particular, they change the chemical makeup of your brain. They change your baseline. You don't produce dopamine the basic right you know well, hormone that makes us the basic chemical it, yeah, that basic makes us happy so your baseline is very low your baseline is in the hopeless domain right so that's where you that's where you are that's who you are and, and i mean but i understand there's
0: been junkies in that baseline for 100 years <laughs> yeah and they didn't want to die this yeah. is a generation that doesn't care whether they die because along with that baseline hopelessness is true hopelessness right and we need to change our society I don't think I think the addiction opiate crisis and the overdose death is a symptom I of totally sick our with society you. I totally agree agree with you Absolutely. And it's on a continuum of
2: symptoms so I gotta go run so, a group right. yeah we're but,
0: out of time But okay. let's, uh, let's we can edit this song stuff mm-hmm. so let's uh, end with the event Rio. Right? yeah I' read yeah, yeah, when, 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 when it is and what, so, it, what it's going on so, but they've got to go to the ALO website or your website. So anyways, we're going to we're gonna try to make a better world or a better America. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's going to start on August 31st in Clover Park in Santa Monica, 2600 Ocean Park at Boulevard in Santa Monica from 4 to 7. It's a community gathering. Bring a blanket, picnic, and help us build our community of healing. Bring your kids too. I'm going to bring my kids. Kid my kids it's a family day. It's going to be fun. My son, kind of, he's eight, going to be nine. He kind of knows about the drug world. He's like, is this one of those of your work things? And I was like, yeah, but it's at a park. It's going to be fun. We it's going have, to be music. We have art activities. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make a big
1: tapestry of love where everybody decorates something to put on the tapestry to memorialize or remember something, you know, somebody, somebody that we love.
2: It's going to be a, a reverent time where um we're celebrating the lives that we've lost while raising awareness so that's part of overdose and ending stigma right
0: so. so bring your kids come on down hang out at the clover park i know i know clover i don't know the names of parks it's the, i know where it is so I, it's right
1: it's on ocean park and 25th between like 25th and 27th it's beautiful yeah, so it, it beautiful. Kind of looks like a dog park yeah, it's right. beautiful. There it has a lot of old A&E trees. There, there oh. used to be an Amy
0: in the clubhouse there. Right, Mike? You've been there. Great right. old trees. So come yeah, to you. the to come to the event and we'll all get together and talk more. Thank you so much for coming down here, you guys. Thanks thank you for, for having being us. part of this. Thank yeah. you. All right. Uh right. bye bye. Play the music, Mike. I- Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.